Hey, uh, good morning. It's great to be uh, with you. Um, here's the thing is uh, I have a life motto and it's always trust a Ben. So uh, we have Ben and Ben, it's great. I've never met a Ben that I didn't personally like. Maybe you have. Uh, don't introduce them to me because it'll ruin my streak, okay? Uh, as, uh, as Ben said, I uh, get to serve as a pastor in Costa Mesa, California. And if you don't believe that there can be unity between churches, uh, and you don't believe in the reconciliation of the gospel, just know that someone this morning drove across the orange curtain to come to Los Angeles just to be with you. And that is the power of the gospel. Uh, but i just kidding, it is great to be uh, with you. Today we are gonna talk about solitude, but before that, uh, I wanna show you the opposite of solitude. This is my family right there. Uh, there we are on a lovely summer day eating Thrifty's ice cream. Uh, and if, you, if you've noticed, I have two kids, but that's not the most dadly thing about me in this photo. I'm eating uh, pecan praline ice cream, which is the most dad thing about me in this photo. Amen, yes dads, thank you. So we got uh, Nora in the back, she's uh, just turned five. Charlie, he's two, and then Bethany, I won't say her age, but I am married to her. So uh, it's a great family, and uh, of course, because nap times and schedules, they're not uh, with us this morning, uh, but I did want to give you a little context. Uh, at Rock Harbor, I serve as part of our teaching team, our executive leadership team, and then I lead our Sunday night gathering as well and get to particularly speak into that community. Uh, and then I'm gla glad to be here this morning to just get to hang out with you, to talk about um, something that doesn't come naturally to me. I don't know that it comes naturally to any pastor, uh, but solitude and silence. Uh, and now I was tempted to just open the message, say, hey, we're going to practice silence and let's just do 30 minutes of silence. Young mothers or young parents are like, yes, let's do that. Uh, but we will, uh, by the end of today, have practiced a little bit of silence. But I want to talk a little bit about why it's challenging, why it's hard. Uh, if I'm honest, uh, I was uh, gifted with a sabbatical last summer. If I'm honest, I actually realized on that sabbatical that while I'm a dad with young kids, like you can tell I'm an introvert, I, I love silence. In other words, I like being alone to refill my batteries. Any other introverts in here, you're like, yes, I like to, to do things alone, like on my own, yes. Uh, but I found out that while I love silence, I actually hate solitude, right? Silence is about quiet. Solitude is about being alone. Even though I love introversion, one of my biggest uh, enemies in life is like, I don't want to be lonely or be alone. Uh, Ruth Haley Barton talks about solitude and silence. She's like a guru about spiritual disciplines. Uh, and in fact, uh, I'm sure at some point in this Practicing the Way series, you guys are going to hear another quote or two from Ruth Haley Barton. But she distinguishes between silence and solitude. In fact, these are two overlapping but distinct disciplines. Silence is the spiritual discipline, she says, of withdrawing or abstaining from noise, words, and activity for a time to become more attuned to the voice of God. So you can think about this as, as the absence of distractions or the absence of noise. Now, I know in Los Angeles, just like Orange County, it's hard to get away from noise or hard to get away from distractions. But I think about it as almost like uh, if, you, if you put your phone away and you went to uh, maybe a spot in your home or maybe even for a walk, even though there's the white noise of traffic or even though there might be uh, uh, the kind of random background noise, it's this idea of quieting yourself, quieting your soul and creating the space 
to be quiet and present with yourself and with God. That's silence. Solitude, on the other hand, solitude, she says, is the discipline that calls us to pull away from life in the company of others for the purpose of giving our full and undivided attention to God. So if silence is about quiet, uh, solitude is about a temporary withdrawal from people. So we move away from our relationships. We move away from uh, uh, the relationships particularly in which we we are responsible towards. If you're part of a family or maybe in your job, you feel responsible in your relationships. You feel like, I have to connect. If I shut off my phone or if I turn off the noise, what if they need to reach me? What if an emergency comes up at the office, right? This is solitude where we, we withdraw from people for the sake of not just getting alone, not just recharging our batteries, but for the sake of undivided attention to God. And for me, when I first discovered solitude, I, I, I preferred silence, but solitude felt like a vulnerable space. Why? Because I realized that wherever I went, there I was. <laughs> to be alone was a scary thing because it was alone with my thoughts, alone with my inner world, alone with all the things I'd been pushing down and pushing to the side. But solitude and silence are actually gifts from God to connect with God. Solitude and silence, this is my definition, silence and solitude are spiritual practices that eliminate distractions and quiet the noise of life for the purpose of being with God. In solitude and silence, then we stop striving. That's an external posture, striving in life. We stop, uh, we release control. And we submit ourselves to the presence of God. Psalm 46.10, which you may know this passage, is a famous passage that that is used historically and it's wed to uh, the discipline of solitude and silence. It says, be still and know that I am God. The Hebrew word for be still is rafa and it literally means to let go of your grip. How many of you that that word rafa let go of your grip would be how you're describing your life right now. I'm gripping on to my life. I'm striving to make it through life. I, I, I need to work harder to do better. I, I just need to, to succeed at my job. I need to make more. I need to earn more. I need to have more in order to get where I want to be. I can't take a rest until I've hit the goal. I can't uh, slow down until I've got where I want it to be, whether it's a number of followers, whether it's an income, whether it's a, a house whether it's a relationship, but we're striving, striving, moving faster, faster. Ruth Haley Barton says that to practice solitude then is to take seriously our need to quiet the noise and the constant stimulation of our lives, to cease the constant striving of human effort, to bring ourselves back from our absorption in human relationships for a time in order to give God full access to our souls. So solitude and silence then is about quieting the externals of life so that we might allow God to speak to the noise that's actually going on all the time inside. We quiet the externals so that the internal life might surface and become present to God. 
And today we're going to talk about why this posture, why these practices, particularly in Southern California, in LA and OC, are, are, are challenging for us. We're going to talk about uh, why this is hard, but we're also going to talk about how we can take some baby steps into practicing this discipline throughout our week and in our lives. So many times none of us practice solitude and silence because we think what it means is getting away on a silent retreat, spending a weekend in the woods by ourselves or going to a monastery to practice this or even I have to spend an hour or two hours or, or 24 hours all this time. But actually we're going to talk about how a land is a simple practice where we can learn to embrace solitude and silence in four-minute chunks. We're going to have baby steps into stepping into this together. So we're going to talk about how, but first, uh, in case you're skeptical of church history, I just want to make the point, and this is point number one, that Jesus practiced solitude and silence. Did you catch that from the passage we just read? He went to a quiet place, a solitary place, a lonely place, some translations even say. Now often, uh, and I find myself in this camp, more often than I care to admit, we want the results of Jesus without the practices of Jesus. Do you find yourself like that? I want the results of Jesus. I want his quiet, unhurried, non-anxious, peace-filled, love-soaked life. But I want to get there without stopping, without quieting my soul, while I continue to rush, while I continue to strive. In other words, I want his results with my methods. But Jesus doesn't want to just do things for us in the Christian life. He wants to teach us our very life. Uh, I have a, you know, Charlie, I just showed you a picture of him, my two-year-old. And you guys know Valentine's just showed up. That was either a great day for you or maybe not. Right? And so one of the things I've learned early in our marriage, or actually it was in our dating relationship, Bethany taught me that, like, she prefers flowers on Valentine's Day, Okay. So I learned that lesson early. I didn't grow up in a romantic household. My parents never did romantic stuff for each other, and I thought that was the norm. So I thought of flowers as a waste of money, right? Because flowers are eventually going to die, right? So why would I spend, you know, 10, 20, 30 uh, on flowers that are going to die? And Bethany taught me the wisdom that flowers are a symbol of love and affection. And so now I buy flowers for her every Valentine's Day. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, yeah, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, apparently you learned that lesson as well. Well done. Uh, we have solidarity. But uh, one of the things I'm trying to do uh, is as I raise a child, I'm trying to teach Charlie something that I didn't learn until my 20s. I'm trying to teach him something at two years old. So I took him to Trader Joe's on Valentine's morning and me and him, we grabbed two flowers Said, you pick one out for your sister. I'll pick one out for your mom. And we are going to deliver these flowers. And so I took him, we opened the door, we came in the door, we delivered the flowers to our girls, and they, uh, I think Nora actually squealed getting the flowers. But the whole point of teaching Charlie to do this is, is, is I don't want him at the end of the day to say, wow, dad, you are amazing for buying flowers. You are an amazing dad. You're an amazing husband. You're ama- Man, you are the flower king, dude. Man, my dad always used to buy flowers from my mom. He was great. No. I teach Charlie how to do this because I want him one day to have the muscle memory, the knowledge, the experience of doing this, of showing his love in a way like that. So I think often uh, we're looking at the results of Jesus without following the way of Jesus. Jesus in this passage shows us a pattern of prayer that we can pay attention to. 
He shows us how to practice solitude and silence. He goes away to a lonely place, a place of solitude and silence. And Jesus, throughout the Gospels, now these are the stories. In fact, I love reading a story like that in a Sunday service because it's not the exciting story, is it? We read the stories where Jesus heals, where he delivers, where he sets free. And actually, we fail to find those in-between, those stories that you just kind of pass over as you're reading your Bible. And those are the stories where we find the pattern of Jesus for all of life. See, Jesus uh, slows down. You'll find this, you read through the Gospel of Mark uh, this week, and you'll see it. He sometimes is waking up early to pray, like in our passage for today. Sometimes he's staying up late to pray. Sometimes he's saying to his disciples, hey, you guys go on ahead. In other words, he's, he's setting boundaries with his close friends in order to say, I need some special time to just be with my Father in heaven. See, Jesus carves out the space to be with his Father. Jesus slows down to be present to God. And what does he do in this space? I think he does two things. One, I think he spends time with his father, simply being present to him and letting God be present to him. The second thing he does, I think he enters into a conversational relationship with the father. And what do they talk about? You ever wonder what Jesus and the father talk about as they pray? The passage isn't explicit, but if you go back a few verses, you see what does happen when the Father, at Jesus' baptism, the heavens open, and and the Spirit descends like a dove, and then the Father says over Jesus, he says, you are my son, with you I am pleased. And I wonder if every time that Jesus is going back to the place of quiet, whenever Jesus is going back to the place of solitude and silence, I wonder if what's happening is Jesus is having his identity reaffirmed. He's having uh, those words that the Father has spoken over him at his baptism if he's hearing the Father say it again in the place of quiet. His identity is reaffirmed. His identity is solidified. It's deepened. It's strengthened. I think that in the place of quiet, in the place of prayer, Jesus remembers those words and sometimes hears them again. You're my son. With you, I'm well pleased. See, the Father speaks to his identity in the place of prayer. The other thing I think they talk about is what Jesus is going to do next. Jesus clarifies his mission. In fact, look back uh, to Mark chapter 1. Verse 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place or a lonely place where he prayed. And then Simon and his companions, so the rest of the guys, went up to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. In other words, from uh, his last round of ministry, Jesus had become quite popular. Jesus, everybody's saying, hey, the crowd's looking for you. Jesus, you got to go back and minister to the crowd. If your popularity was growing, if you were needed by others, what would you do? What Jesus does after having been in the solitary place, in the quiet place, he replies, let us go not to the crowds, verse 38, but let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. See, in prayer, Jesus has his identity affirmed, but he also has his mission clarified. In the place of prayer, Jesus is is sent on mission. In other words, he knows what to do and where to go and how to do it because he spent time with the Father. 
I wonder what would happen in your next business meeting, in the next boardroom meeting, in your next teaching of a classroom, in your next whatever you do for work kind of moment, if you'd slowed down to be present to the Father, say, hey God, how do you want me to enter into that meeting? Hey, uh, God, I know me and my spouse are about to have part two of that uh, heated conversation. Is there anything you want to speak to me or say to me or do with me before I enter into that conversation? See, Jesus slows down to have his identity affirmed and his mission clarified. And even when the crowds are pressing in, even when the demands of life are coming at him, he knows what to say, where to go, what to do, because he spent time with his father. In other words, in solitude and silence then, We embrace who God made us to be and we learn how to step into what God has made us and called us to do. So if Jesus slowed down to be with his father, how much more might we need to slow down to be in the presence of God? How much more might we need to slow down to be with Jesus? To practice solitude and silence then is point number two, to slow down to be present with God. We need to slow down to be present. And now, of course, we come to the reason or the reasons why this is so hard and countercultural for us. Why is it so hard to slow down? Well, we suffer as a culture from what psychologists have labeled hurry sickness. Yes, this is a real thing. This is a new uh, sickness that's emerged in our culture. And it's defined like this, hurry sickness and you can diagnose yourself, we're gonna do a little WebMD action right now, a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, defined as a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. I love this. So, hey, if you're on this side of the equation when it comes to hurry sickness, maybe you're an achiever. Maybe you like to succeed. Maybe you're like, I want to cram more into my life. I'm going to figure out all the productivity hacks. I'm going to generate more and more and more. Like, I'm going to achieve. I'm going to make it happen. That's one type of hurry sickness. The other type, though, uh, is the person who says, hey, man, let's have some fun tonight. And actually, let's cram as much fun into our lives as possible. Did you catch the second part of that? Who wants to participate in more and more events in less and less time? Right, whether you're a high achiever and successful or whether you just love to party and cram more and more fun into your life, chances are you, like me, struggle with some form of hurry sickness. And in a culture built on achievement and productivity and success, in a culture built on experiencing more, binging more, consuming more, we find ourselves unable to slow down. We find ourselves unable to be present to God and as a byproduct, unable to be present to the people we love. One of the worst things that can happen to you as a parent, and I know if you're a parent in this room who has an iPhone, you know what this feels like when your kid pushes your iPhone down or your phone down and says, hey dad, can you pay attention to me? All right, here's the thing about phones, and I know that in a series like this, you're probably going to talk a lot about phones and all that, uh, but the algorithm behind the apps that we use and consume 
uh, the algorithm in the app is not your friend. The job of the algorithm is to pull your attention so that it can shape your affections so that it can form your addiction. Let me say it again. The algorithm wants to hold your attention. It wants to learn what you pay attention to so that it can form your affection so that you long to pay attention to the types of things it's showing you so that it can form your addiction so that the person behind the app can have more of your time which is more of your money, which is better for them and debilitating for you. John Mark Comer says it this way. He says, today, you are far more likely to run into the enemy in the form of an alert on your phone while you're reading your Bible or a multi-day Netflix binge or a full-on dopamine addiction to Instagram, or a Saturday morning at the office, or another game on a, a soccer game on a Sunday, or commitment after commitment in a life of speed. Corey Ten Boom, who was a missionary, once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll just make you busy. And the question is, often we talk about, you know, what's the cost of following Jesus? The question this morning is, what's the cost of not following Jesus in this area? What's the cost of not following Jesus into solitude and silence? So I think what happens when we fail to slow down is we recognize that uh, not just our gas tank gets depleted, but our reservoir gets depleted. I'll talk about what I mean in a moment. But our gas tank, right, this is how most of us go through life, just like we drive our car. Like you drive it until it gets close to en empty, or if you're like my wife, you drive until you get to that last mile before empty. <laughs> and then you what? Go fill it up, and then you can drive some more. You fill it up, you empty it out, you fill, and that's how we live life. But what happens is when crisis hits, we need something else to draw from. And so many of us, we have this kind of uh, metaphorical reservoir. And it's like, oh man, I went through a hard moment. I'm going to draw from the reservoir. And we keep doing this over and over and over again. But we have no mechanism. We have no pattern. We have no way to fill our reservoir. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, when people ask me how I'm doing, uh, I find myself wanting to answer with way too much information. In fact, I want to give a lot of disclaimers. I want to tell people, hey, I haven't lived a normal year since 2017. <laughs> That was the last, like in my memory, that's the last normal year I lived. Let me trace it out for you. Okay, 2017, normal year. 2018, uh, we moved into a new apartment, not that big of a deal, but then my wife became pregnant, right? So this is like a, a life stage change for us. Then 2019, we have Nora, our firstborn. And then four months after Nora is born, Bethany is diagnosed with stage two Hodgkin's lymphoma, so cancer. She goes into six months of chemo treatment, one of the most abnormal seasons, actually the most abnormal season I've ever lived through in our life. And then she enters remission, right? So it's the end of 2019, uh, and then uh, a couple months later, we're in 2020, and then we enter into COVID, <laughs> right? And that's something we all lived through, a disruption we all lived through. Then out of COVID, she's pregnant with Charlie, 2022, and then, uh, or that's 2021, and then 2022, uh, after Charlie's born, Rock Harbor, the church where I work, uh, has goes through a series of leadership transitions, and we brought in a new lead pastor. And I remember in that season, like we were literally like planning in three-month chunks. 
Like as in we didn't know in that transition season if anything would be the same in three months from now. So don't plan like a year ahead. Don't do like a five year, do like a three month, one to three month plan. Anybody live through a season like that? Right, disruption after disruption, change after change, new normal after new normal. The metaphor that I was using in that season, I was like, I feel like I'm in like a triathlon, like a relay, you know, like you go biking and then you go swimming and then you go into, uh, oh, sorry, biking, swimming, running, right, those three. And then I felt like every time I'd finish a segment, it would be like, okay, uh, actually, uh, you finished running, you finished biking, you've swin- finished swimming, now uh, why not enter a boxing match? And then after that, I was like, why not enter a pie-eating contest, right? Like every time, it's just like a new event, and I'm like, I gotta compete in this, I gotta compete in this. And it felt like never-ending. And while through that whole season, I could fill up the gas tank, I realized from the advice of a mentor, a pastor in my life, he said, I think that your reservoir has been depleted. This making sense? Look at this uh, by way of metaphor. Lake Oroville, uh, this is a, a picture of Lake Oroville on December 21st. Okay, so that's the picture of the lake. It doesn't look like a lake. It looks like a, a, a small river, right? That's what it looked like in December 21st after the drought. You guys remember the drought? Yes? Uh, December 21st, 2022. Uh, Then there's this winter where there's tons and tons of rain, and now look at the same picture in June 12, 2023. You see the difference between living on empty, living with a depleted reservoir, and living with one that's full. Now I'm not talking about lakes, I'm talking about your soul. Many of us, when we fail to get away in places like solitude and silence, to get away to be with our Father in heaven, to be with God, our lives look like that first picture. Yeah, there's a little bit of water. We can make it through the day. We can make it through the week. But there's no fullness. There's no vibrancy. And if you're like me, you find yourself waiting and waiting for the next event. Like, if I can just get through this season, then things will get better. Like, if I can just make it through this uh, tough month of work, then I'll put myself on a vacation and things will be better. I just need to work super hard to get to graduation. I just need to work super hard, and once I get the promotion, then my life will be easier. I just need to get through this wedding planning season, and then once the wedding happens, things are going to be, like, like, super easy. Once I get through this crisis, or once you get through whatever it is, the truth is, if we live our lives like that, just waiting to get to the, to, the, to the goal, then we're gonna get to the goal and we're gonna realize there's a new goal and we're gonna realize that it's thing after thing, time after time. But Jesus, in his compassion to us, gives us the gift of solitude and silence to fill up the reservoir of our soul. Kasuke Koyama says this, who's a Japanese theologian. He says, love has its speed. It is a spiritual speed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. It's the speed we walk, and therefore, it's the speed the love of God walks. Kasuke is describing the pace of walking. And he's saying that God's love moves at the space that a human being walks. And if you rush ahead of God, if you run, uh, if you try to sprint your way through life, you'll never slow slow down long enough to be present to the very love of God that wants to come to you in the slow and the still and the quiet. What if so many 
What if, what if we as a culture, as a people, have learned to rush our way through life to such a point that we don't know how to slow down to be present to God in our actual lives as they are happening? When we rush through life, we miss God coming to us in our lives. So how do we slow down? Right, as I said earlier, we, you know, we're, most of us aren't going to be able to get away for, for like um, a week of solitude and silence or, or even a weekend of solitude and silence. But how can we begin to integrate this practice into our lives here and now? Well, one of the things we could do is start doing it daily or weekly or every few days. Take four minutes and be silent with the Lord. So here's how I do this. I take my phone and I set a timer for four minutes and then I put my phone away where I can't reach it Close my eyes, take a deep breath, say, come Holy Spirit. And then I wait. Sometimes uh, all sorts of to-do lists will come in my mind. I'll just keep a little piece of paper. Yep, take out the trash. Do the laundry. Schedule that meeting. Get it out of my mind. Now, Lord, I want to be present to you. Sometimes my mind will wander And as one theologian says, uh, every time your mind wanders in prayer, it's an invitation to come back to Jesus. Sometimes, though, what surfaces for me is my own life. And often, Jesus wants to start speaking to me about what's going on in my own life. And this is point number three, and we'll come into land with this. Let your inner life rise to the surface. When we practice solitude and silence... Uh, we are left with the common denominator of our lives. That's us. We're left with ourselves. And so our inner life rises to the surface. And one thing I've discovered in my own life is that when we avoid and ignore the places of tension in our lives, they show up somewhere else. In other words, if I suppress and, and, and push down the anger or the frustration or the confusion in my life, it's going to surface somewhere else. And it has a way of surfacing in the places and spaces where we'd rather it not. Right? It can surface in our lives, for instance, in the board meeting where we start getting angrier and angrier to make our point. It can surface when our kid does the thing that we're like, why did you do that boneheaded thing again? And then all of a sudden, the anger comes out. It can surface uh, in, in, in all the spaces and places that we don't want. It can surface on the freeway, right? Road rage surfaces at the least opportune times. Why? Because we're not making the space to let our emotions, to let our inner world surface in the one place that's the safest, most loving place for it to surface. I like to think about emotions as the check engine light of our soul, of our inner world. Uh, I have a forerunner. It's a 2004 forerunner, so it's one of the, uh, it's not really a super old one, it's like a mid-tier old one. And the thing about this car is the check engine light comes on all the time. Now, the check engine light, uh, the thing is, I'm always thinking like, oh, it's going to be some catastrophe. Like, oh, man, the check engine light's on. And so so I go to the mechanic, and actually what he told me, he said, hey, here's the thing. These old forerunners, usually when the check engine light comes on, it's just the gas can lid. I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, you just didn't screw it on tight enough. You got to, they're kind of finicky. You got to screw it on the right way. I was like, are you serious? And I actually looked, and from then I I looked at the actual gas can lid, and Toyota, instead of fixing this problem, they just wrote on the lid that your check engine light's going to come on if you don't screw it on right. Like, that was their fix. That was their solution. But here's the problem. If, If I get in the habit then, because of all this, you know, 
poor design into seeing that check engine light come on and ignoring it? What happens when there actually is a problem with the engine? See, I think many of us are living our lives like that. If I don't use the check engine light as an opportunity to check in on the engine, I'm just a breakdown waiting to happen. What if when we're feeling that anxiety, what if we're feeling that anger, what if when we're feeling uh, that sadness, what if we found a safe place to let those emotions surface? What if we could surface those things in and before and at the feet of Jesus? So I do this every week. I call it my emotional inventory. So I'll start with the four minutes of silence, and then I move right into this inventory. I write it down on my, in my journal. I put uh, happy, sad, angry, anxious. And I'll just start writing down where in the last week or the last 24 hours, uh, where, where have I felt happiness? Where have I felt anger? Where have I felt sadness? Where have I felt anxiety? And all of a sudden, my real life starts rising to the surface. And I'll find myself looking at this and finding uh, moments and spaces and, and, and places where God uh, wants to speak to me about my own life. God wants to minister to me, maybe healing. Uh, maybe he wants to speak to my identity. Maybe he wants to speak uh, to the way I'm carrying myself. But in this space, I'll say, Lord, what are you speaking to me? What are you revealing to me as I surface my emotions in your presence? And more often than not, God wants to speak to me about who I am. He wants to speak to me about his love for me. And he wants to invite me, like he wants to invite you, to be ministered to by his Holy Spirit. See, in the place of solitude and silence, your inner life can surface for the sake of God, or for the, or the reason uh, is so that God can speak to you about your life and speak to you through your life. Uh, that, that the Lord can begin to speak to that still small place inside your soul to remind you who you are. And to let his love minister to you in that place. See, solitude and silence at the end of the day is about retreating from the noise, retreating from the world, retreating from all the busyness and responsibility to hear from our Father in heaven, to lay our head on his chest, to hear his voice, to know his love, so that we can reintegrate, so that we can step back into our very lives full and aware of the presence of God, full and aware of the love of God in our lives. And so what we want to do for the next couple minutes just before we land in communion, and we're going to quiet ourselves, quiet our soul, and just be present to God's presence. And now, Lord, as we sit in this silence, in this space, we want to let whatever emotions are within us to surface. Maybe you even pick one of those. Maybe it's a place of happiness uh, that's surfacing. You're saying, man, I'm filled with joy or excitement about this thing. Uh, talk with the Lord about that. Maybe it's an area of sadness. Lord, I'm just feeling down or this situation happened and I want to put it before you into your presence. Maybe it's anger or frustration. Lord, that conversation or that thing, is, it's surfacing for me. I want to allow it to surface now in your presence. Or maybe, of course, it's anxiety. Lord, I'm anxious about this meeting or this week or this 
tests coming up, whatever it is for you, just begin to surface that and tell the Lord what it is.